Welcome to the sermon podcast for New Life Church's Cabot Campus. We are located at 3400 West Main Street in Cabot, Arkansas. Our service times are Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. To find more information about what we believe, upcoming events, and more, please visit newlifechurch.tv or you can text the word Cabot to 88000. Today, I want to talk to you about what it means to be truly great. The title of this talk could be called A Tale of Two Kings. Uh, Growing up, we all learned about different people that did great things. A lot of times it was the people that did something first that were the great ones to do it. Our, Our first president, George Washington, great president. First person to set foot on the moon, Neil Armstrong. First person to figure out that there's honey in bees' nests. I don't know who they are, they're crazy, but we're thankful for them. We're glad that they figured that out. But what makes a person truly great? Well, I think it probably depends on who you ask and it probably depends on where you're trying to be great. In the show business in Hollywood, they would probably say, well, you gotta have a pretty face and talent and probably some abs, you know, that's like standards of that kind of stuff. In Washington, D.C., we won't talk too long about that, but they would probably say connections, knowing the right people, paying attention to the polls, that type of thing. Wall Street, you gotta know money. Leveraging money, moving money around in sports, physical conditioning and practice and genetics, instincts. But what does God say greatness is? In 1 Samuel 16, verse seven says, the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Highlight. Circle heart. This is literally saying that God says, my way of seeing is not like man's way of seeing. God sees this internal condition. One way you could say it is, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. If you want to make your life count, if you want to truly be great in the eyes of eternity, in the eyes of heaven, What matters is your heart. So as we wrap up this Life of David series today, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. I know some of us have been out vacation, traveling. You can always go back and catch up on any of the sermons on our podcast or on our Facebook page. And I encourage you to do that. Uh, We heard a great word last week from Pastor Kevin, uh, just talking about that small voice of the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna expound on that a little bit today. Uh, But we learned that David was a pretty incredible king. He was a poet, a warrior, a giant killer, a general. He united kingdoms. He wrote one of the most of one of the most beloved books in the Bible, Psalms. An incredible lineup of achievements, but God wasn't impressed with any of those things. What impressed God about David was his heart. So we've read this verse a couple of times throughout this series in Acts 13, 22, and then I'm gonna to go to verse 36. It says, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. You know, what's interesting is we know, even what we've learned through the series, that David didn't always do God's will. So it's interesting to me that that even in spite of David's brokenness, 
that his heart after God was the thing that God emphasized. That's the focus. Not on his mistakes, but that his heart continued to be after God. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his heart. He fulfilled the purpose, fulfilled the purpose. I'm just telling you right now that if you are not walking around God's purpose for your life, you're gonna be empty. You're gonna be unfulfilled. I don't care how good you think you've got it. Outside of the purpose of God, it will leave you feeling empty because only the purpose of God is gonna be there after everything else is gone. Only his purpose. So great question. Are you a person after God's own heart? And there's really two ways to say that. Like, are you a person that has a heart that is like God's? It's created after God's heart. Or are you a person who's after it? Like, I, I want the heart of God more than anything in my life. From Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15 to 1 Samuel 16, you can see this contrast in these two different hearts, the heart of Saul and then the heart of David. And Saul was a person who had God's anointing, but he forfeited it. And then David was a guy who continued to walk in God's anointing and fulfilled his calling. So another question you could answer, am I a Saul or David? Well, let's look at them. Let's contrast them. First in Samuel 15, it talks a lot about Saul. The first thing that we can learn about Saul was Saul was a people pleaser. Saul was a people pleaser. So interesting, because Saul had some physical attributes that made him stand out. The word actually says that he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. So he was tall. It also says that he was the best looking man in the entire country. Okay, so, so if like you're an 80s kid like me, like this would be the equivalent of all the guys we used to think like they were the most attractive, you know, the Tom Cruises, the Brad Pitts, the Denzel Washingtons, okay, now it's like all the guys named Chris that are part of the, Avenger, the Avengers cast, right? Like all these guys. And I'm just, they are good looking men, all right? But, but Saul had them all beat. Saul, according to man's judgment, had it all. But here's the thing, and I've learned this too. When you start leading people, actually having to lead people and making decisions and telling other people what to do, your looks wear off and people will start picking on your flaws and not just what's happening with his hairline, not just that, but like decisions you make. And because of that, King Saul begins to get really insecure and struggles with jealousy and it drove him to paranoia and he hurt a lot of people. We've talked about that throughout this series. The problem with being a people pleaser is you end up having to trade in your backbone. And in verse three of chapter 15 says, now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Though so the context is the prophet Samuel comes to him and he says, hey, this is a command from the Lord. He tells Saul this, go and wipe out these people completely. Everything that they have. 
So Saul goes to battle, but he didn't do completely what God commanded. He let his men keep some of the best animals and he spared some of the people's lives. So then Samuel comes to rebuke Saul. I love this passage. This isn't in your notes, but verse 22 of chapter 15 says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like evil of the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. What's so powerful about that word is it removes any of our control to think because we do good things that that's what God is going to ultimately be pleased with. If we are not obedient, if we aren't submitted to who God is, to his character, if we're not submitted to his word, then all the good things you can do won't matter at all because what God is most interested in is an obedient, broken, teachable spirit. So Saul misses that, but this was Saul's response in verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Why? Because I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. The people pleaser. Saul had a fear of man inside of his heart. And you can't lead and be under people's thumbs. That's in your family, at school, on your job, and even on the ball fields. To lead, you have to have a backbone. But there's great promises about not bowing to the opinion of man, but trusting in the Lord. And here's one in Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man is a dangerous trap, but to trust in God means safety. God will have your back. He'll protect you. Also, Saul waffled at complete obedience. So Saul was commanded by God to wipe out everyone, all the Amalekites. And this is probably one of the most ruthless moments in the Bible. But the Amalekites were an evil, awful people. And God says, no one lives, not even the animals. And Saul obeys, kinda, partially, but he doesn't go all the way. I think a good question to ask is, why is it that God seems so ruthless sometimes? But I think a better way to phrase that question is, why does God's love seem so ruthless sometimes? The reason why is because God can see further down the road than we can. We can see the curve on the road, but God knows what's on the other side of the curve. This leftover remnant of the Amalekites a few generations later produced a man named Haman who plotted to kill and destroy all the Jews. God sees down the road. 
you're ever driving through Mayflower in 89, you can take a left and you can find some backcountry road and there's some serious, no joke hills back there. These roads go over. Uh, and I happen to know for a fact that some of these hills are, are they're so steep. Like when you get to the top, as it crests, you can't see the other side. You're like, you're pointed that far up that as you come to the top, you can't see the other side. And I happen to know that at about 50 miles an hour, even in a minivan, you can catch air. And I love that feeling. I don't know where my other people are that like that feeling. I like that feeling. I actually like that feeling of weightlessness in my stomach, right? I, like, I, love, I love the adrenaline rush of that. You know who doesn't like that? My wife. And, and she's particularly offended when I do it in her van. And so she doesn't care for that. In fact, she hates roller coasters because of that. She hates that feeling. I love them. And I, I'll, I can like make her get on a roller coaster or the kids can make her get on a roller coaster, but she does not wanna be there. In fact, the moment that she sits down in a roller coaster seat, as soon as she puts that safety bar down, if you ever wanna know what Cody's prayer language sounds like, get on a roller coaster with her because she will be praying louder and nobody knows what's going on. You know, if unbelievers are there and she starts praying in tongues and they're like, this foreign lady's going nuts behind me. I don't even know what's, something's wrong with her. And I love it. It's a blast for me. Uh, and the whole time, the whole time, like every turn, she's just prophesying and like <laughs> casting demons out of everything. It's fun. But she doesn't like that feeling. And, and I, I get that, you know, because it's scary not always knowing what's next. It takes a lot of surrender and trust to be like, man, even though I can't see can know that he's got a plan. It's crazy feeling sometimes not knowing what's next. And sometimes God's love is ruthless because he sees what's next. He sees what's down the road and he sees the aftermath if you don't trust him. And the thing that I love about God most of the time is God refuses to minimize the things that will destroy me. And what I mean by most of the time is it's not necessarily always fun when you're in the middle of it and it's like, what's going on, God? Why would you ask me to do this? This doesn't seem to make sense. But a lot of times, the way that the Lord is speaking to us and the way the Lord is commanding us, it's around those things that he knows are ultimately gonna destroy us. And that's why sometimes by his spirit, he says, get rid of those friends. Get rid of that vice in your life. Get rid of that temptation. Don't leave one ounce of it in your life because I see what's on the other side of the hill. I see the aftermath, I know it, and I love you, and my love is ruthless for you. But at the end of the day, you've gotta see it, and you've gotta take responsibility. Matthew 5, 29, it says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
Some of you are like, this is crazy. <laughs> like, especially if you've never been to church before, it's like, okay, we're leaving. But in the original language, Jesus is not being literal. He's saying, be this vigilant about the things that can cause you to stumble and sin. Look at it this seriously. Don't mess around with it. I see the aftermath. I see the aftermath. You have to take responsibility though. Let's just be real. The real failures that typically cut deep and set us back the most are almost always connected and started with partial obedience. Like I was obedient, but not all the way. And maybe that is morally. Sometimes it's just poor planning because you ran ahead of the wisdom that God wanted to give you. Or sometimes it's pride because you have a lack of teachability. But what I've learned and what I've noticed is it starts really young. I think one of the most important things that we can teach our kids is the value of personal responsibility. But I'm telling you, when I'm with my kids and I'm trying to get them to say this one simple phrase, I was wrong. It is like pulling teeth. It starts at a young age. Compromise. Slow obedience. We always say in our house, slow obedience is no obedience. Like if we tell you to do something and you huff and puff and you're just whining and complaining and you don't do it right away, well, at that point, you're, you don't, you've missed the opportunity for obedience. It's gone. A few years ago, our youngest, Grayson, we are heading into a time of prayer and fasting like we do every year as a church. And so as a family, we usually sit down and we say, okay, we want everybody, each of you to pick something individually that you feel led, that you need to fast, that you need to, to put aside to not do this week so you can put more focus on praying, more focus on Jesus. And then we'll pick something as a family that we'll all do together. And so at this point, Grayson was really young and, and she really liked sucking on her thumb. And, and I mean, like, like really loved sucking on her thumb. And, and so as we went around, she said, I'm going to fast sucking my thumb. And I'm like, this is amazing. Like at that point, I'm like, we've arrived. Like we're, we're the most godly parents that have ever lived because she recognized that this is something that consumes her, that she wants a lot and that she wants to not do it so that she can get more of Jesus. And I'm like, Jesus, just come back now and, and we'll be winners if you just come back right now. So we felt pretty good about it. The next morning, Grayson comes in for breakfast and she is sucking on that thumb. Just going to town. We're like, Grayson, baby girl, I thought, I thought you said that you were gonna fast sucking your thumb. And with full confidence and assurance, she said, I said I was gonna fast sucking this thumb. <laughs> this is my other thumb. <laughs> At that point, we're like, we've got a long way to go. <laughs> God help us. But the truth is we can do the same thing in justifying our sin and compromise. My God, I know, I know your word says this, but 
but my situation's unique. I'm the only one that's had to deal with this, like this. So give me some grace. And he will. If there's repentance, if you're willing to change the behavior, if you can see it, respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. At some point, you have to say no more excuses, no more blame, no more being a victim. I'm gonna take responsibility and I'm gonna get back up and continue being the person God's created me to be. Some qualities of David. First of all, David had a shepherd's heart. David had a shepherd's heart. At one point, the prophet Samuel comes, uh, he's sent by God to Jesse because, uh, because God's fed up with Saul and he's ready to find and anoint the new king. And so he goes to Jesse because he knew that it was gonna be one of Jesse's son that he was going to anoint. And so in chapter 16, verse 11 says, this is Samuel speaking to Jesse, he says, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. So basically, Samuel shows up, and, and we don't actually know. Jesse may have had daughters. A lot of times, especially in Old Testament, in that culture, they mo- a lot of times they only would name the males in the family, okay? But we know that he had a bunch of sons. And, and so just like we would do in our culture, it's like, okay, he's coming here to anoint the next king. We, we're going to get the, I mean, obviously it's this son because he's, you know, built like a linebacker and he's handsome and he's got all the attributes that you'd want to have in a king. And, and God says, nope, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him, not any of these guys. Jesse, is there uh, any, do you have, have, happen to have any other? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I almost forgot about David. I get that. I forget I have kids sometimes too. I've got four. You can lose track of them real quick, all right? And, and he's like, yeah, David, he's out in the fields with the sheep. Why? Because he's doing the job that nobody else wants to do. Because, man, taking care of the sheep, that, that doesn't, nobody wants that job. Day after day, just in the hillsides, finding feed, finding water, caring for them, protecting them, providing for them. It's hard work. The days are long. It can be dangerous. But one of the most difficult things about it is no one's around to see you doing it. I don't know how it is for you. A lot of times when I work hard, it's important to me that it gets noticed. I think that's kind of natural. It's in human nature. It's like when I work hard, I just want people to recognize I worked hard. Uh, It's a big deal, maybe a bigger deal than other cases for my wife Cody to notice when I've done something. You know? Hey, Cody. I did the dishes. Did you notice that? Didn't even ask me. Just did them. That's right. That light that was flickering changed it. Used all my height. Kind of a big deal. And I'll just be honest. A lot of times, the reason why I want her to notice all that is because I hope it makes her want to kiss me. Being totally honest. I like it, and most of us like it when our hard work is recognized, but that's not the way that David spent most of his life early on. He was invisible. 
But the truth is nothing tests humility quite like invisibility. And David grew in that obscurity. And the truth is, if you can't thrive in obscurity, then you will crumble under popularity. And you may feel like no one sees you. You may feel like, man, uh, late nights, homework, clothes, dishes, trying to pair socks. in your place of work, behind the scenes, in your ministry. Maybe you feel alone even in parenting sometimes. Maybe you feel alone. But God is working when no one else is watching. And it is an opportunity to cultivate character. It is an opportunity to cultivate a shepherd's heart that says, the only thing that matters is the glory of the king. The only thing that matters is the glory of my father. And so I'm gonna be faithful and I'm gonna be steadfast. Even when other people can't see it, God sees it. And I need that character more than I need the recognition. There's so many people that serve around here like that. They have that kind of heart. I think about the Moyers, this couple in our church those two sisters that they, they, they come in every week and they straighten and organize and replenish every one of the seat backs. Just go through and like the pins at a certain spot. Nobody, a lot, they don't care. They don't, they come in here quietly. They just do it. And why? Because they're like, this is our father's church. This is our father's house. And this represents our Father, so we're gonna be excellent. We're gonna do this with all of our heart because it could bring glory to the Father. It does bring glory to the Father. Mm, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. If you feel alone, God sees you and he's cultivating a shepherd's heart in you. In Psalm 78, 70, it says, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens from tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. Also, David was quick to repent. We've talked about before that not all of David's life was a model for everything. We certainly wouldn't necessarily look at David for to model how to be a really great husband. We don't necessarily look at him to learn how to be a gracious father. Actually, those are two probably the, the most major weaknesses in his life because for some reason in those two particular areas, he just wouldn't seek God. And it was a block for him. But overall, the heart that he had was teachable. And that was the quality that made David continue to rise to the top because David would admit his mistakes. He'd be confronted by a friend or a prophet and his heart would quick, quickly yield to that conviction that he felt. 
You can read about accounts of this all over the Psalms, in Psalm 32 and Psalm 38 and Psalm 51. But what I've learned from my own life, how long it takes me to repent shows just how weak I really am. How long it takes us to repent shows how weak we really are. And I, and I know this, it's been this way in my own life. I've gone through seasons where, man, I can hear some of the best sermons and some of the best preaching and, and worship and prayer. And I know the Holy Spirit's working and there's even altar calls. And I still don't repent. I still, I still think, ah, I can't. It's not, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. I can, I can get it right next week. The truth is this, sometimes what you're struggling with, it isn't wrong, but it isn't wise. And I do believe that when you have a heart that is after God, you don't just consider the things that people say were right and wrong. You have to consider it may be permissible, but it's not beneficial. And if it doesn't point me towards being the fullness of everything God's created me and called me to be, then I don't need it. It's not wise. And David would repent about these types of things. Every once in a while, I've seen people that, Man, they just resist it, and they resist it, and they resist it. We had a lady that left, walked out of our church one time, and when we asked her, hey, what, what's going on? Why are you leaving? She said this. She said, this church makes me feel so bad. And I'm like, that is not the reputation that we have as a church. But I knew what she was really saying. What she was really saying is, I'm dealing with conviction, but I don't want to listen. And that is the truth. This, you need to hear this from a pastor's heart because this is going to be a hard thing to hear. Sometimes you will make yourself a victim to other people, not because of what they're doing, but because it's easier to point to how they hurt you than it is for you to obey the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your own life. And the problem with that is the enemy sets you up to be caught in a cycle of that. And you will go to dozens of churches and never be planted. You will go through dozens of friendships and never find biblical community. And it's not about all of them. The common denominator is, no, you're hurt and you're wounded and you're in pain, but it's because you refuse to repent. Soften your heart. None of that is in my notes, but that is a word from the Lord for somebody in this room. Also, David was a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? It means he loved God's will for his life with his intellect, with his desires, his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved what God loved. He valued what God valued. He pursued God's presence. He wanted God's guidance. I said that there were some weaknesses in his life, but in all of scripture, no one else went to God more than David to ask him for help, for guidance. He was desperate to know which way God wanted him to go. He was after God's heart. 
Psalm 25, 4, make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. He would say this kind of stuff over and over and over again. So the tale of two kings is really this. There's Saul that says, God, here's my plan. I want you to come and bless it. And there was David that says, God, what is your plan? I just want to be a part of it. I want to help execute it because your plans are blessed. So I choose your plans. So some of you, I think you're probably at a crossroads right now in a job, a relationship, your health, school, ministry. And in those crossroads and in these types of seasons, you're either going to be a Saul or you're going to be a David in that moment. Where you say, God, I, want, I just want, I want all of your heart. I'm after it. Everything that I have, I'm not perfect. I'm broken. But the motive of my intention in my heart is I want what you have for me. And I will do whatever I have to do to walk in your will, to walk in your purpose. Or you'll make excuses. You'll let the fear of what people think, what people would say, dictate your decisions. You'll be partially obedient. God will still love you. You'll still have grace on your life but you'll miss his will. In Isaiah 30, 21, it says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Like being hungry for that Holy Spirit intuition. You would call it like an inward witness. Pastor Kevin talked about it last week. It's like that hesitancy, that gentle nudge, but here's the thing, Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He doesn't scream, he doesn't yell, he doesn't force people to do stuff. He usually speaks in a whisper. And the thing that you know about people that are quiet, if you got any quiet friends, if you're ever gonna hear what they have to say, you have to get close to hear what they have to say. If you want to be led by the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to get really close to him. You're going to have to make it your priority to reject other things that would keep you away from him, that you know would hurt your ability to come to him with confidence. You're going to have to pursue him. Cody and I were coming up on 22 years of marriage uh, this month, actually. Uh, it's getting really serious. I'm really thankful for that. And, uh, but, but here's the thing. When you've been married a long time, you just know the other person. You know, her, you know him so well. Like, I promise you, Cody can tilt her head a certain way and she wrote a paragraph. Your spouse can give you a look and be like, Cody just wrote a book on how if I don't stop what I'm doing, she's gonna kill me. With a look. Relationship with the Holy Spirit is not too different than that. The more time you spend around him, the more time you spend pursuing him and desiring what he wants over anything that you think that you want or someone else is telling you that you want, the more time you spend with him, the more he gives you just a gentle nudge. You'll sense him and you'll be like, this is what I need to do. If there's nothing clear 
in our culture, we have to be led by the Holy Spirit. We need to be more sensitive to him than we've ever been before. I would suggest that some of this starts with a holy, reverent fear. That we're not scared of God, but it causes us to shudder that we would miss him. God, I just don't want to miss what you have. God, give us a heart after yours. That is greatness. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads. If you've been coming to church here very long at all, you kind of figure out like, this is the service order. This is gonna happen at this point. This is gonna happen at this point. That's fine. Some of that's intentional. The one thing that I never want to become routine is this moment right now. And what do I mean? This is the moment where every week there may be less than a handful of times that I can think of in the history of our church where we haven't given an opportunity for salvation. And what I don't want you to do is if you have been here for a while to just gloss over this. The fact is if you know you're saved, you have that confidence and you have that joy. Don't lose the joy of your salvation in such a way that you stop praying and interceding when other people have an opportunity for that same salvation. So if you're a Christian, as soon as we go into this, please fight the urge to think about what you're gonna do after service. Please fight the urge to be distracted by what's next and remember that a soul hangs in the balance that eternity is real, heaven is real, hell is real, and apart from Jesus, there is no hope, there is only death. And please pray for those that are lost. But if you're here, and even if you've heard me say it a hundred times, the reality is the Holy Spirit has already been telling you for you specifically, like he's been telling you before you came to service today, but you knew the opportunity was gonna come, but don't let this be another Sunday where you can say, I can get real and I can get honest next week. Don't put it off. Let today be the day of your salvation. And there might be some of you, it's like, no, man, I just showed up. I didn't know you were going to be doing any of this. But right now, I don't know what it is, and I don't know how to, to qualify it or quantify it. But I know that, that there's something inside of me that's telling me that I need Jesus. I need a relationship with him. I've never had that. I've just been hopeless, empty. I haven't had peace. If you're in that place, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to him. So Christians are praying. You're remembering what Jesus did for you. You're remembering how it changed you. It transformed you. 
you're praying for those that may not have it yet. But if you are here and you're away from him, you need to come to him. Maybe you thought you did it at one point. You even remember a prayer. You remember a moment like this. But if you're honest and real, you, you, you don't have it. You don't have it right now. You don't have that relationship. You're away from him. This is for you too. And if you're here and you know you need to call on Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as a sign, an act of faith of you confessing it and admitting it, I want you to put your hand up right now across this room. Thank you, guys. As soon as we make eye contact, you can put your hand down. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, got it. Anyone else? I know I, know I need him. I'm away from him. Thank you. Appreciate it, bro. Anyone else? I want you to know nobody else's opinion around you matters as much as the creator of the universe. If he's pulling on you, don't wait. Don't wait. Don't worry about anybody else. It's between you and the Lord. And I want to pray with you. Is there anyone else? I'm ready to call on Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm away from him. Just one second because somebody's being stubborn. They're like right on the edge of it. And then they're like, ah, I don't want to. Oh, maybe I shouldn't. This is for you. You raising your hand is not what gets you saved. No. But you raising your hand in faith and obedience is going to unlock some grace on you right now that you desperately need. So if that's you, don't be stubborn right now. Be humble. Respect you, dude. Respect you, bro. Thank you. Okay. We're going to pray together, okay? Because I think it's good as a church family to encourage those that are around us that are making this decision. So repeat after me. Say, Jesus, I need you. Say it with some volume in case somebody is in that place where they, if they could, they would, they would shout it at the top of their lungs. And I want them to feel confident that they can be confident. Say, Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you rose from the grave. You defeated death. You defeated my sin so I can have life and purpose and peace and joy and hope in you, I surrender my life to you. Be my Lord. Have control. Father God, thank you so much for the people that said that prayer for the first time, first time in a long time. I thank you, God, that you're going to help them by your spirit to draw closer to you and understand. And I pray, God, that they'd experience everything that you have to offer, including the gifts of your spirit. And God, I pray that you would lead them and give them a passion and a hunger and desire for your word, that it wouldn't just be a book, but it would be like reading a letter from their heavenly father. God, I pray that you would help us as a church to come alongside of them so that they can grow and be discipled, become fully devoted followers. And thank you, God, that this is a place of biblical community where they can be connected and be challenged and encouraged and grow. 
We give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God some praise for those people.